Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Infinite Jest Book Club and Fellowship uh, and 18-Step Program. Um, we are joined by the usual suspects, as well as Liz. Liz, hi. Hey. It's so nice to see you from Germany. Thanks. So, um, amazing. I'm uh, so happy that this is happening. Me too. We yeah, uh, we needed some international flavor. Thank you. Um, you cool. So I hope. Yeah, I'm the only one in the states, right? No, me and Sasha and Muhammad. Whatever. Okay. Um, so we will pick up uh, on um, Mario Incandenza's first and only even remotely romantic experience thus far um so the uss uh it is 121 um i know there's a couple of different editions so the pages may not be exactly the same right in every edition really in every english edition well fine liz then it's 121 I'll stop interrupting you now. No, you're fine. Um, yeah, so page 121. Um, you know, as we are getting into this, I, I does anybody have any general comments about how this reread has been? Um, anything that that you've noticed or you know, the way it feels, anything like that? I'd say it's kind of, it's it's almost a whole new book on a second reread, especially because um, I think our first meeting was literally the day after I finished the book for the first time. So having all of it, like the tail end of it fresh in my mind and then returning to the beginning and being like, oh, this character's from that or this ties in there, this comes back later, you know? It's just very fun to like rediscover things and, you know, details that I, kind of rushed past or was like whatever i'm just trying to get through the book like right or they just didn't mean a thing to you right mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah that's that's a, a great point um anybody else i find like this is my, the fourth time i'm re i'm reading reading the book and i find that um the one i would say that one of the most noticeable differences for me is how I relate to the characters like Mario here, for example, the first or maybe even the second time I read the book, Mario was not, I wasn't really paying attention to him as a character, it was not important to me. Um, but this time I feel that I am, that this, he is, and maybe not the most, but he is an important character to me. And then I also see that I'm paying more attention to the words. Like the first time, second time I read it, I wanted to make sense of things. So I read it not fast, but that was, I, if there was a part that I wasn't understanding, I just kept going. But this time I'm taking my time, paying attention to the words and wondering what he meant by this or that. So yeah, it's been definitely different. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree with, with both of you guys. Um, and especially, yeah, Sasha, I can imagine like your second time through. Um, Cause I still, 
today. Um, I really don't know that there is any, you know, of, of course there are obtuse um, concepts happening, but a lot of the stuff is pretty plain English. It's just that they're 600 pages apart. So it, it's really hard to draw a connection from one thing to the next when it may be three weeks later that you're reading it or three years or not even. Um, you know, so I'm always amazed when I come across those things. And I like the order of some of the scenes I'll be like reading and be like, fuck, that's right here. I could have swore that was at the end of the book. And really what it brings me back to is the order that you read this book in matters little. I don't think, um, you know, I was even thinking as planning this, like maybe it would make sense to do one whole week of just the Marath and Steeply scenes. And then, you know, as we were reading, it was like one of, oh, it was the, uh, the locker room scene. Um, and I happened to skip ahead and I read another scene that was later in the book. And I believe it was chronologically later. And I just thought, wow, this would be really interesting to see, you know, where did we go? Well, we know where we started and we know where we ended up, but we don't know a lot of what happens in the middle, which is, you know, one of the constants of this book. Um, cool. So, yeah, I would like to, you know, as we continue this, I would like to start drawing some parallels um, with things that happen later in the book that that we already know about. Um, you know, cause that is the main advantage of doing this with rereaders, um, is, is that we do kind of have that knowledge of what happens. Um, and I actually spent a little time on the, uh, Serpinski gasket thing, um, which I know we've talked about and that I really don't understand kind of, um, but I have tried and the Sarpinski gasket is basically from what I understand. And I'm not a mather. Um, it is a series of fractals. Um, and basically or or specifically triangles so um wallace if you take like a triangle and then you make it in half and you make three triangles out of it and then you make those in half and you make three triangles of those basically you would never run out uh, um one of the things, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, have you guys ever read that book? No. One of the things that sticks to me from that book, and I probably haven't read it in uh, 30, a lot of years, 
Um, but the grandpa is in bed in the beginning of the book and he has a candy bar that he keeps breaking in half every day and eating half. And his thought being, I will never run out because half of something is always something, um, which I, I suppose is correct. Um, but at some point we're getting down to atoms and and molecules and things um but i think that that may have been what wallace may have been looking for here um liz how do i do a screen share again share yeah share oh god damn it i got it from here liz Uh, so, uh, this was from an interview. Um, so this is the reviewer. Something came into my head that may be entirely imaginary, which seemed to be that the book was written in fractals. Fucking Wallace expand on that. No, I'm interviewing you asshole. That was me. That was uh, editorial. So the interviewer says, it occurred to me that the way in which the material is presented allows for a subject to be announced in a small form, and then it comes back in a second form containing the other subjects, and then comes back again. And I don't know this kind of science, but I said to myself, this must be fractals. And Wallace said, I've heard you were an acute reader. That's one of the things structurally going on. It's actually structured like something called a Sierpinski gasket, which is a very primitive kind of pyramidal fractal. Actually, though, what was structured as a Sarpinski gasket was the draft that I delivered to my editor, and it went through some, I think, mercy cuts, so it's probably kind of a lopsided Sarpinski gasket now. Um, so this is a Sarpinski gasket. Um, so just, uh, we, we definitely don't have to get into the math part of it, because I don't understand that either. Um, but without understanding this, um, it's funny because I can I, I feel like I can kind of see these things happening. Um, and does that make sense? Like, can anybody kind of see like and i guess how it strikes me is scenes that are echoes of different scenes um can anybody think of any specific examples i mean just opening my book on the on 121 which is the mario and millicent yep on the page on the page opposite um i wrote this is years ago when I wrote, read this book. <laughs> I haven't read it in a while, but I wrote Echoes of Marath and it's on the third line down or second line down. You'll hear him say it over and over. What have you got to give? What are you willing to part with? Anyway, I just underlined that. Coincidentally, yeah. it's on that opposite page. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's that. I, there are just so many, um, you know, al- almost like, like quotes or like musically where, 
you know, in the middle of a song, someone teases like a jam from another song. I, I feel almost like there's some of that going on. Um, and I'm sure we'll come across more specific examples of that. Um, but I just wanted to share that because I know that we've been talking about it um, and that it actually is a thing. So on to... Yes. paste the link to that article in the chat maybe yes good idea um so yes on to mario what is going on in this scene mario and hal are out for a postprandial stroll right um I really, I, I think that this may be the first scene in the book, like reading it from the beginning, where you start to maybe question what is actually going on with Mario, right? Because um, I, I don't, know if uh, I, I don't think Mario is narrating this scene but Mario is kind of given another dimension you know he kind of becomes three-dimensional Mario could sense that Hal wanted to be able to go off by himself briefly so he contrived Mario did to be very interested in some sort of leaf and twig ensemble off the path um so given some of the other descriptions we have of Mario being kind of invalid and um, physically and or mentally challenged, um, you know, this ability of Mario to sense that his brother wants to be by himself is something that I think is kind of an advanced human function. Yeah, I think something that uh, having you know, read this for the first time a couple months ago, like I was kind of startled. There's a section much later on where it actually describes in detail like um, Mario's birth and like how exactly um, like the exact nature of his physical disabilities and like in detail. And mm -hmm. I was kind of taken aback because that had sort of not um, that had not registered to me at all just because of how um i guess i didn't expect it like i i thought there was a i could i gathered that they was kind of slow but like not that it was as extreme as the book described later and i think it's because of scenes like this where it you know talks about some of his feelings and perceptions and motivations so yeah yeah anybody else Yeah, I would say it has a lot to do with who is describing Mario, right? Um, because, I mean, I, I've got to say, it, you put Mario up next to Hal and take out the police lock, I don't know who's uh, more functional, really. Um, 
So, all right. So yeah, Mario and Hal are kind of walking around campus and um, Hal wants to go get high. So Mario starts looking at uh, leaves and shit. Um, and then we, uh, he runs into Millicent Kent, right? All right. Um, so Millicent Kent is a 16 year old, the number one singles on the girls, 16 and 200 kilos if she was one. So she is a big girl um, and like solid. It's <clears throat> excuse me. It's described her um, like having weightlifting contests. Uh, a fiercely wagered on bench press challenge against shocked Freer and Petropolis Khan uh, that Pemulus had orga organized last spring. Um, so uh, yeah, she's uh, uh, she can take care of herself. Um, and so, so Mario tells her that uh, her bow looks terrific. And what a surprise to come face to face out here in the chill dusk. And the narrative is very funny because a couple lines later it says, yes. Oh, okay. Uh, in parentheses, he hadn't literally said chill dusk. So what did he say? And why does the narrative say chill dusk if that's not what he said? Um, so anybody want to, uh, describe the encounter, uh, between Mario and the USS Millicent Kent? So, uh, <laughs> So walking, Mario comes up to around the bottom of Millicent's rib cage, which is a romantic placement. Um, so yeah, MK is all about uh, Mario, right? She loves his eyelashes and uh, she goes in for a kiss uh, and that's that like, like i don't know what what do you think is the point of this scene do you think it is to describe this romantic encounter i've always felt oh, go ahead please yeah i just i feel like mario has kind of been portrayed as like a helpless child through the majority of the book so far and this is kind of a I'm done with Disney sort of thing in a sense. I just yeah, kind of that awkward transition into adulthood. So this is Miley Cyrus's wrecking ball. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what this is. <laughs> All right, I like it. Uh, yeah, I also think one of the one of if not the function of this scene is to. I think that's what I always feel when I read it. Uh, show a kind of, of, of longing for some 
you know, purity or some genuine feeling that most of the characters are, uh, it's impossible for them to, to, to feel anymore. First of all, Hal, we learn at, at some point, I don't remember where, that he's not even interested in girls, but not, not in not even in a sexual way, but just in a in a you know personal attachment way. Just he he, he cannot be interested in girls. How, how could he be like romantically or sexually? You mean, or or even simple interactions with another person? With another, I don't think he he's capable anymore. So we kind of see the you know. The, I think you're muted. No, I can't hear you, Georgia. I could hear you and then I couldn't. Can you, t can you hear me, Georgia? No, huh? One minute. Yes, I'll be right here. Giorgio will uh rejoin um and yeah i there is certainly a lot of innocence here and um i would say to giorgio's point um i don't think it matters to mario whether he is interfacing with a man woman child cat dog or squirrel he is he kind of gives everyone his his best um and kind of doesn't bring any baggage with him right there is certainly nothing ulterior like like mario did not totter down the steps saying yeah i played hard to get this time so that next time she goes right for my cock no that didn't happen like it, it just it was just a thing um and also he's the you know he can be the the opposite of of the you know the perfect kid is always worried about how he's being perceived how others might think of him and the one that you know is described as having a claw as if as being all stunted and all that it, 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 he's not capable of having that thought that the, that malice of thinking about how others might insult him or you know uh, perceive him badly it's, yeah. a, it's an anti hall in this in this occasion, I think. I love this too because. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. It's really short. I hadn't. I like that, Giorgio. I actually hadn't thought of that before, about how this really does convey like raw, innocent, pure emotion, and how funny, right? That in the time that we get to see this raw, pure, innocent emotion, it's so clunky and awkward. Like in this moment of like what's genuine between two people, it's fucking awkward. It's like not working. And I feel like this is a theme of Wallace's or at least like a sentiment that he carried with him that like to be real, to like really feel, to like present yourself forward in a complex world is like just to be a human being on the planet and like really to own that, own your humanity is one of the most awkward things you could do. Um, it's beautiful in that way. Thanks for helping me see that. Yeah. Um... Yeah, definitely. Um, not, not a lot of romance happening here. Um, so I would say definitely those things are 
points of this scene, but also kind of tucked away neatly in here is her description of her father's abuse um, as she was growing up. Again, not, uh, I don't even think it's the first time that that has reared its head in the book, but it, I do know it will not be the last. Um, I mean, it, it's almost, I don't know if you guys have ever had this feeling where in this book where you're reading it and you're like, didn't I just fucking read this? And it's like, oh, that was a different character in a different, um, so yeah. So the U.S. Ellison Kent's father, who also was no spring chicken. Um, he would wear his daughter's clothes um, and like in secret, like Hal getting high. Um, oh, and I'm sorry, before we jump into that. So ostensibly USS Millicent Kent had um, came up or had approached Mario because of this camera that she found in the woods, right? And then Mario asked her, hey, do you know if it's the Husky 6 tripod uh, with the waffle gridded rubber tips on the legs and a 360 degree pan head or the SL one with the unwaffled tips and only a 180 degree pan head? She didn't know. Um, but she, so she accepted a scholarship at age nine to get away from her father. Um, so yeah, she, at one point she, she came in and saw her father in her like leotard. Right. Um, but he didn't fit in it very well. I picture Chris Farley being her dad. Yes, but not as funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah. It's a little funny. <laughs> All right. It is. Um, yeah, just. Yeah, probably not the kind of thing you want to walk in on. Um, so, yeah, they're they're tramping through the woods here. Um you know, looking for this camera. And so she asks Mario if he's ever seen a girl's yin yang before. Um, and it, it mixed in with the description of her father in the leotard. Uh, you know, and then she says, no wonder her sister's one pieces and figure skating skirts always looked so askewly baggy and elastic shot. Since the sisters didn't exactly wear tiny little malnourished sizes themselves. Um, Ying Yang, Mario offered, nodding. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, that, that's kind of troubling, right? Yeah. I feel um, like this is... Sorry, I I, no. I feel like this is again. Thank you again. Um, and we we said this last time in the last the last meeting. How um, we have here again this combination of something that is supposed to be really sad and and tragic. What happened to her? 
and and the what happened to her it's so shocking and traumatic but at the same time it's it's funny and it's not supposed to be funny i don't know every time i read pieces like these i remember and i don't know i wonder david foster wallace said he wrote the book and he intended this to be sad so, and I don't know, uh, is this one of those parts where he wants the reader to feel sad, relate to the character or, or to make us or make me in this case, I realize that I am a bad person for laughing or finding something that is really tragic and sad, I'm finding it, I find it funny and I feel bad about myself for having that reaction. So I don't know if that was his intention or not. But I, again, I think this story right here is a combination of those elements that we find in other pieces of the book. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's funny because as you read this, you might say, oh my God, what the fuck is wrong with this dude? Um, but it doesn't take long before you might say shit at least he didn't fuck her like his daughter um you know like yeah he probably shouldn't be stretching out his daughter's clothes and everything but but in the grand scheme of things compared to some of the other abuse in this book he might be all right yeah that's like the absurdity of, I think, was it Penelope's brother who was like, you know, well, at least he used the Vaseline. Like, what? Like, no. Like, right. That part, I won't go into detail, but that is sort of the same vibe. Yeah. And yeah. And, and so, I mean, in terms of, let, let's just talk. Please, let's talk about the sexual abuse of children. Um, you know, so there's, yeah, there's Maddie Pamulus. There is um, the girl at the AA meeting, right? Uh, the incestuous diddling. Um, and then there's this. And there is the Orin and Avril stuff, which is never explicit. Um, and in that category, I think we can also put Joelle and her dad, right? Where whatever is going on, it, it's, it's a little creepy, if nothing else. Um, and is there anything else that I, I might, any other instances that I may be missing or forgetting? Avril and John Wayne? Avril and John Wayne? Yeah. Unless he's of age. I don't know, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. So, so while this is introduced as what the fuck, like upon rereads and such, it never goes beyond that for me. You know, it's like, well, why, why the fuck doesn't this dude buy his own girls swimsuits? Why does he stretch out his daughters? I, I don't get you know, I don't get that. But to me, it doesn't strike me as an overtly sexual thing um, for his daughters. Um, I think this is a him thing. But, um, but yes, uh, MK says that the day after, like, 
when this shit was going on, when he was capering, um, she decided she needed to get out of Dodge. And coincidentally enough, um, himself called the next day to offer a scholarship. Um, that was probably just a coincidence, right? Um, so yes, then MK grabs uh, Mario and uh, tries to pull his head to her breasts, but he doesn't quite reach. Um, crushed Mario's large head to the area just below her breasts. Um, and <laughs> I mean, this is just so incredibly unsexy. Um, what Mario perceived as a radical drop in the prevailing temperature was in fact the USS Millicent Kent's sexual stimulation sucking tremendous quantities of ambient energy out of the air surrounding them. Um, so good. Yeah, it, it, it is. Um, and it reminds me at least of uh what the, what the fuck that annulation the the process of shooting shit away in order to attract it um so so i think there's certainly some of that mario's face was so squashed against MK's thorax that he had to contort his mouth way out to the left to breathe. Her hair bow became detached and fluttered down through his sight line like a giant crazed violet moth. USS MK was trying to undo Mario's corduroys, but was frustrated by the complex system of snaps and fasteners at the bottom of his police locks Velcro vest. Well, she's rather forward, isn't she? <laughs> like, like she's trying to take off his goddamn pants in the woods. Like they live here. They they have a place probably more private to go. Um, but they don't. So uh it's when so she wrapped go ahead, please. Sorry, sorry. It's also an kind of an ambivalent, you know, sentiment here because you, you, you see, you know, imagine if you if you saw someone wanting to have sex with the special kid in the class, you know, mm -hmm. it's kind of uh, yeah, I I I I want him to have a normal life with all the experiences, but maybe he doesn't quite understand what it, what is going on. So is it? taking advantage of you know his purity you know, again just to yeah because yeah, he doesn't know what the hell's going on does he yeah, I don't Ma think so. mario tried to reconfigure his mouth somehow to both breathe and warn the uss mk that he was incredibly ticklish in the area of the belly button and directly below um the child yeah when you, when you hear this these things he's a child yep um and another thing that i would say to keep an eye out for but you're not going to have to because it's literally everywhere this idea of 
attempting to do two things at once. So here he's trying to reconfigure his mouth in order to both breathe and warn the USS MK. Um, my guess is we will see this about a hundred times in the book. My favorite is Lens. Um, offhand, it's the sound that his mouth makes is him trying to talk while chewing on his tongue. Um, something like that, which if anybody has ever done cocaine, you will absolutely understand. Um, and if not, don't. Drugs are bad. Um, but yeah, that sort of thing pops up everywhere. Um, so, uh, oh, Jesus Christ. Didn't real I didn't remember this part. Uh, it was when uh, Millicent wrapped one arm around his shoulder for leverage. Please, like every good love scene needs leverage, right? And forced her other hand up under the hem of the tight vest and then down inside the trousers and briefs, rooting for a penis that Mario became so ticklish that he began to double up, clearing his face of Millicent's front and laughing out loud in such a distinctive high-pitched way that Hal had no trouble finding him. Compromised though his navigational systems were after 15 or so secret minutes alone in the fragrant pines, um, Mario said it was like having a word on the tip of your tongue that you can't remember. And then it pops. It was when the three of them were walking together back up the hillside toward the tree line's lip, not trying to do anything but get back to Comad, uh, that they found the camera. Um, but if this was, was Wallace's attempt at a sad scene, I'm going to say he failed miserably because, I mean, I don't know. Maybe one of us has ever been in a situation that is a little bit compromising. And then someone, you know, walks in and you, try as you might to play it off inevitably there's something where it doesn't belong or, or something, something askew. I would love to get a look at Mario right now. I mean, she's up his shirt, down his pants. He can't even fucking dress himself. Like, yeah, I, I picture like glasses askew. If he has them hair, a mess shirt, untucked, zipper half down um but in any case so they uh they have not consummated their relationship here um stay tuned but what do you make of the camera in the woods yeah there's a section where they mention a bird someone sees a bird uh on the tree uh, standing on the tree without saying anything. So I thought, is this himself, the ghost of himself? 
and he he did something with the tripod he hid the tripod so his hand has something to do with this i don't know um that's what i thought when i yeah okay um yeah because i think that the um the wraith certainly gets blamed for the camera in the woods right or or at least that's what a lot of people say that you know because things keep disappearing and reappearing where they don't belong um starting with the camera and continuing right through the book um a thought that i had was because i know there's a lot of theories that well this is a the infinite jest that what we are reading in in this book might actually be the infinite jest movie i don't know i i can't really take that trip um but what i do wonder is is this camera in the woods recording the flag because remember this is after the flagpole conversation where you can lower a flag to half staff by raising so i at least had the thought that was if you know however this camera got out there maybe mario put it there maybe mario put it there for a time lapse of the flag being lowered at night and being raised in the morning um you know, to kind of match along if Mario is making this movie of his life of infinite jest. He had already mentioned the flag to Stitt, remember when they were on the motorcycle? So Hal mentioned it to him. It made enough of an impression that he mentioned it back to Stitt on the motorcycle. And if this flag thing is something that has really stuck, maybe that's why the camera is out there either the see i don't know i can't wrap my heads around head around a ghost having to put a camera out in the woods um because he's he's a ghost i have a question isn't the ghost supposed to be hal's father is that yes remember that correctly yes Wasn't father also the creator of the infinite chest film or whatever cartridge yes in the stand it's just like he's still making movies he's even as a ghost like is that is that possible or or through mario i i think that the wraith has certainly visited mario um i don't know how often these visits happen i don't know if they're collaborative in nature um i don't I don't know that Mario knows exactly what is happening. Um, but yeah, I, 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 the camera in the woods just, it, it struck me because again, what does a wraith need a camera for? He doesn't, um, he doesn't even have hands. He's a wraith. Um, but I did think about the, the flagpole and maybe that's what it's doing out there. I can't remember if I'm remembering this correctly or not, but didn't we have a discussion at some point in the book about like 
um, kind of like filling the time when not really knowing what to do with your time. And for a lot of people, that's an addiction to a certain thing. And again, I can't help but feel like maybe this is like, even in the afterlife, whether you turn into a ghost or what, like, are you still seeking out those addictions? Like that same thing? Or again, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's an interesting idea. Um, and I'm sorry, this was not a camera. It was just a tripod out in the woods. Uh, um, not that that makes it any less troubling or whatever. Um, you know, what is a tripod doing out on the <laughs> doing out there? Um, so, all right. So presumably everyone goes back home and, uh, enjoys a quiet evening after this. Um, and now we are back to Steeply and Marath. All right. And we know that Marath's Ops Center is Boston. Um, now, do you guys have trouble keeping these sections in your head? What happens in each of these? I, I tend to kind of group it together as Marath and Steeply. Rather than, oh, yeah, the first in, in the first section, they talked about this. And in the second, they talked about this. So, um, again, this is, uh, it, it appears to be Marath uh, narrating. And he is getting less and less, uh, not only complimentary, but... Um, like he doesn't even try, right, with Steeply. Um, now, they mentioned the anti-entertainment. Uh, also, does this quote anti-entertainment, the film's director supposedly made to counter the lethality? Does it really also exist? This really could be some sort of game for you in the FLQ to hold out the promise of the anti-entertainment as a chip for concessions, as some kind of remedy or antidote. Of this anti-film that antidotes the seduction, we have no evidence except craziness of rumors. Um, so, yeah, there, I, I guess what I have trouble not keeping track of, but taking seriously is that the two of these people are obviously engaged in subterfuge and are not talking honestly or candidly. Like regardless of the, um, odd even or prime natures of one's betrayal or whatever. Um, we do know that both of these guys are spies. They are there to get information more than to give information and any information that they give the point of that giving is to get something back. 
again, like the waste fans, but, um, so it's really hard for me to take, um, a lot of it really, really seriously, except for when it comes down to concepts. Um, because I, I feel like that's one of those things where if you say, well, I don't want to give too much information away. I don't want Liz to know we're planning her uh, surprise birthday party, but I am going to ask her like what her favorite movie is, because that might give me some ideas. Um, so I feel like there is a lot of that going on. Uh, you know, would you die twice, et cetera. Um, and Marath, this is great. And also, you know, it's almost like, fine, we, we've done all this bullshit, but why do they never send you into the field as yourself steeply? This is to say in appearance, the last time you were, what is it I hope to say, a Negro for almost one year? Um, so we had talked um, about this, I believe, in a previous um, meeting where there's all of these grotesqueries. Um, so yes, yeah, Steepley was Haitian um, to go out in the field. And it's mentioned that they are always changing people to be the opposite kind of of what they are to send them out in the field so no one recognizes them. Um, so that was a very quick uh, kind of interlude. Um, any, anything else from that little section? You know, other than, other than it's always some kind of uh, another hint at, uh, you know, loss of identity or, uh, you know, one's characteristics that for someone to disguise themselves in such an, into personas such different, that are so different from himself, you know, you have to fundamentally uh, come to terms to, you know, being a kind of a blank canvas you know he he, he electrically removes his hair from you know the beard hair and uh, and all of that so he, he is losing some of these characteristics that he he naturally has to you know dress up as someone else so it, it could be just one more dog whistle of the of the theme of the book all right um yeah and so, I mean, in this small little little thing, we get uh, the anti-entertainment, whether or not there is an antidote. And again, I don't know if there is or not. Um, I, certainly not from what I just read here. Um, and the uh, why are you never yourself um, and the grotesqueries. And Marath does mention again here the sunglasses that are missing now. Um, and remember, in the last uh, meeting, we talked about those. They were mentioned twice 
very close together in the narrative, but in different ways. So almost like a different person was observing them. Um, and I, I know I've mentioned this, but I, it seems that both the first and last lines of all of these chapters are really fucking great ones. Um, so Mareth, who could remember, uh, yeah, so they, uh, some others of his comrade on wheels believed Remy Marath to be eidetic, near perfect in recall and detail. Marath, who could remember several incidents of crucial, crucial observations he had failed to later recall, knew this was not true, which is hysterical. I mean, that's like dumb and dumber. Do you want to bet that I can get you to gamble by the end of the day? You're on. Oh, I know I'm going to do it. I'm gonna. I just don't know what, like that sort of thing. Um, and so Lyle. This guy's fucking strange, huh? All right, guys, what do you make of Lyle? Does anyone reread this? Um, like when you go to reread it, you're reading it thinking of Lyle as being a wraith the whole time? Yes. If not the whole time, Liz, it definitely, it is so absurd that I feel like at least, all right, there's got to be something else here because this isn't a person. Per yeah, se. it's like, yeah. Yes, I completely agree. Uh, One thing that I can never tell with David Foster Wallace is if I think he can serve you, you know, with the same intensity, something in the, the most on the nose metaphor known to man and the most subtle one, you know, at the same time. So you never know if. If it, for example, Lyle is a very on-the-nose metaphor for someone who feeds off, you know, the the the, the sweat of the of these kids, you know, someone who prospers on their uh, toils, you know. And so it could be the academy, it could be the the you know the the, the expectation of their parents or of themselves over themselves, or is or maybe it's just. A, a weirdo that you know you never know with this stuff but I, I, the thing the fact that it could be both of those things i think is a you know commendation of on david foster wallace i think do you think so a lot times you know what's oh, that i'm just i'm agreeing i'm just I'm, i agree with, with georgia i it's the number of times i've completely lost my place reading this book thinking is this like not realizing halfway through whether or not it's a metaphor or exactly what he's describing. <laughs> it's yeah. like you get lost so easily. Yeah. So is Lyle a real person? Because he, no, I, he floats, right? He's what? He, he floats. I, I, he, I right, he, he floats. Right. He yeah. floats a, a foot above the the carpet or something. Yeah. 
So do you think that's an argument for him being a real person or not? I mean, I'm going to translate what the back of his shirt says. Deus pro v debit. Do you guys know what that means? God will provide. God will provide. Hmm. I had to, I had to look it up when I read that. I remember that. That's what I found. But it says there's a someone is describing his experience with Lyle, and it says his tongue is little and rough, but feels good. So, does that mean? Could that mean that this is a real person? Someone is describing the feeling, the sensation of being licked by this man, this guru. Yeah. Well, go ahead. Sorry. No. No. Go ahead. I'll catch on later. Well, I, I was just going to say there's descriptions that are very human. His smile could sell things. That is a very descriptive, tangible uh, description of a person. Um, you know, so he has clothes. The shirt is always the same, but sometimes his pants change. But, you know, so, so those, I would say, argue that he is a real person, but he lives on sweat, which is physically impossible for a person. But what if the narrator is one of the kids and this is the, fa this is the way the kid, I don't know who the kid is, but it's is the way the kid would describe what he sees, right? The guru lives off the sweat of others, literally is the interpretation of a kid, but it doesn't mean, I mean, wasn't Lyle a friend of Dr. Incandenza? So maybe he, or, it's, or that was a real man and then he died and I don't, it's true what you were saying. It's so easy to get confused. I, my first thought was, what's that? Uh, yeah, my first thought was like, well, yeah, so when they say he literally lives off of sweat, it it kind of reminded me of like these um the, the pseudo guru gurus, like the the people who are like, I live off of air or I live off of like and it's like they're trying to sell you to like come be a part of their cult as opposed to actually that being the case. Yeah, uh -huh. um, you know it's it's the moment that that he, he, you know, we could reason like that, but the moment he throws in a real real race, he throws a wrench in all the, the logic that you you could apply because he he could be anything, and it it would it would bring into question the the actual uh, you know effectiveness of on the world around them of the race, you know, because we later we later see that they do have if there's more than one they do have some degree of uh, agency you know they, 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 uh, dr incandenza's rate can put thoughts in people's heads and that it's a big uh, you know indictment on free will and whether anyone is acting of his own accord or you know on on orders but uh, it could be that lyle is just a a wraith that 
uh, has a, an exceptional degree of, uh, you know, uh, influence on the world. He can be seen, he can touch things, he can be perceived. Yeah, um, I, I would agree. And um, I think so. This advice that he dispenses, um, I would say this one is probably the theme of this section of this book. Um, do and the Lord said, Let not the weight thou wouldst pull to thyself exceed thine own weight. I don't think the Lord did say that. Maybe Otis Lord said that. Um, but that, yeah. Um, but, but that in terms of recurring themes, the, you can't lift something heavier than yourself, um, is something that is going to crop up pretty frequently in the next, uh, you know, hundred pages or so, um, you guys think of any examples of this, either metaphorically or literally in the book? Did we read the bricklayer part yet? Uh, that is coming up. And yeah, obviously a big one, right? Um <laughs> He's trying to get shingles up on the roof and he's got a pulley, um, but you can't lift something heavier than you. Uh, Does that like pretty much define what addiction is? Yeah, I would say that that is the metaphorical level as well. Um, maybe the AA portion of it the the something that's heavier than you is obviously the addiction and all of the choices and that you can't lift that yourself you can you can try and you can get a pulley and you can fuck you can lift you can lick sweat off someone's forehead if you want but ultimately that is not you're going to need help um also correct me if i'm wrong but you need to accept that it, it will always be stronger than you you know heavier yes but in the in the sense of stronger something that you cannot best you know some unless it's with the, you know constant well, uh, effort right i mean in the simple language of it you're powerless right i mean i am powerless against a a, a moving motor vehicle I can't stop it. I can barely slow it down. Um, so, so yeah, so that's Lyle's advice. Uh, common advice is, um, you know, don't try to lift more than you weigh. Um, and sometimes the newer kids fuck with them and try to do it. And then, and I like how the guru on the towel dispenser doesn't laugh at them or even shake his head sagely. He just smiles, hiding his tongue. He's like a baby. Everything he sees hits him and sinks without bubbles. He just sits there. 
I want to be like that, able to just sit all quiet and pull life toward me, one forehead at a time. His name is supposedly Lyle. So who is this that that wants to be like that? I don't know. First, I thought Hal, but it doesn't sound like him, but like something he would say. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I mean, would Hal want to be want to be able to just sit all quiet and pull life towards him, one forehead at a time? I don't know. Maybe in the sense that it would not have to be the one going for, you know, something. He could just. Yeah, and, and he says he's like a baby. Remember, Hal's an infantophile. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that's interesting. Um, the the fourth wall being broken there in, in a pretty obvious way. To say, fuck, man, I want to be like that. Uh, and his name is supposedly Lyle. All right, thanks. To me, it sounds like Pemulus. Pemulus voice. I mean, would Hal say faggy? I don't know if Hal would say No, that. that's a Gately thing. Oh, true. Yeah, he also wouldn't say Dr. Incandenza, probably. Right. But, yeah. That's a good point, right? That that sounds like Pemulus referring to Dr. Incandenza in that way. He kind of sells things, maybe. Yeah. 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 And that that could certainly be. I I do think that Pemulus is very clearly the narrator of some sections, um, and yeah, maybe this is him. Um, all right, yours truly, and C, and yeah. So we're, we'll we'll leave Lyle there. Um, he'll be there. We'll get back to him. Um. So yours truly and C and poor, poor Tony. Um, so they're trying to uh, get enough drugs to last the Christmas break so that they don't have to go out and try and find drugs on Christmas. Right. To me, this writing is very memorable. Like in all the writing in the world, this is like so stand out to me. Yeah, like the spelling and the vernacular, the punctuation, the, yeah, it's very distinctive. Um, which tomorrow's Christmas, we had to cop in advance. It's a never ending struggle. It's a full-time job to stay straight and there's no vacation for Christmas at any time. It's a fucking bitch of a life. Don't let anybody get over on you different. Um, so they go back to Harvard Square uh, and poor Tony. Um, so they're, they're trying to find drugs. Long story short, they end up in Chinatown, right? And what happens there? They go see uh, Mr. Wu, Mr. Wu. 
Does anyone else live in a big city? I do. Detroit? Do you encounter yeah, things that could be like this? I'm trying oh, to yeah. remember this section. I, uh, I'm not sure if I got up to here, to be honest. And Liz, do you mean just places that are legitimate places of business, but if you know what to ask for, they do something different too? Um, no, but I, yeah, right. That's cool too. Um, no, I was referring just to like addicts in the street. You could walk past them and they're shooting up and they're super fucked up in the cold and they're like in, you know, like, difficult yeah. conditions and you're like watching this and like for me it's like i struggle to um you know there's a part of my heart there's a part of my mind that wants to that wishes i could stop time and stop like and cut all the bullshit and just actually ask these people like who are you like what's your story how did this happen how did this happen to you but you can't just like fucking swoop in and ask that that doesn't work like um but i will i get i but then, but in real time, I walk by and think, oh, fuck, don't stare, don't stare, don't stare. And I don't look. And I just like the Mario, like touching, reaching out to touch the guy who is trying to get someone to touch. Like, I don't touch. I don't look. I just try to mind my own business and keep going. But meanwhile, like these are human beings with a real story in a real life. And so for me, like, I mean, I don't know if I was saying this at the beginning of the call or no, maybe I was saying it at a dinner earlier tonight. Someone asked me why I moved to Berlin. And I said, I'm from a small town and I've never lived in a big city. So this is my, some of my first time like running into this. And it's like to read this book, like opens up, like, I don't mean to make light of it, but like opens up and imagine uh, like a, a whole world of humanity for this thing that I just walked past every day. Anyway. Yeah. It's funny you bring that up. Cause I, I like, we have a, I, I know exactly how you feel. Um, I also live like like two turns from the highway to like get out of here at every, and I've been living here for about eight years now. Every time, every, every time I'm about to like stop at that light, there's always somebody there asking for money. And on like 20 different occasions, I've seen them actually switch shifts, almost like it's like a full-time job. And in my head, it's almost like I'm forgiving myself for just walking past them because to them it's it's economics. But then when I see people actually sleeping on the corner, like actually sleeping in, in doorways, or you see them shooting up or, or trying to get a bite to eat, that excuse isn't there anymore. And and you're right back to square one. And it's like, well, how do I make it's all and then it almost becomes an economic thing. It's like, okay, well. I do this to make myself feel better or like do i actually want to help them at the end of the day that kind of opens up a little moral dilemma yeah yeah and it's funny because in boston um i saw a lot of homeless people and a lot of them because i get up i get up early like when i don't have to so i was like up early in boston and out looking for coffee and i saw like they were dressed as cops i don't know if they were actual cops but they were actually going around 
and getting the homeless people out of like the bank lobbies where the ATMs are, where they could sleep out of the cold. And you could tell this is something they do almost every day. You know, hey, goofball, you got to get up. You got to get out of there. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely uh, part of that. That's a great point, Liz. Um, I had just shared a couple of links. Uh, William Burroughs, No Relation, The Junkies Christmas, um, which is a, a pretty good portrait um, of an addict at Christmas. Because, I mean, look, we all want to be pissed off that on Christmas Day we can't go get a, I don't know, a, a Big Mac, right? Um, but we're going to be fine. That Big Mac will be there tomorrow. There are other people who have a physical need for narcotics and everything else. Um, and, and that doesn't stop on Christmas or New Year or their birthday or when they're out of money. Um, it, it is always there. What and I think it's, it's, it's one of the... Sorry, go ahead. Nope, I was I, I was just that. saying. Oh, that was that, that was me. I know you were going to say something. Go ahead, Hime. Thank you. Really quick, I just think that this is one of the gifts from David Foster Wallace that when he talked about uh, writing about what it means to be a human being, I think this is it. Like when I, it's this section in the book is really hard to read, and I, and I say that out loud almost every time. Like, why do you have to make it so hard? to read this part, but but it's a reality. It's like, Liz, it's like you said, like this humanity. Yeah, we could walk, I feel that too. And it's scary to find ourselves in, in those situations. I could still decide tomorrow to keep walking, not even looking, but, but at least we are aware. Like at least I think like with these pieces that are so hard to read, he's, he's putting that idea, like making ourselves be more aware of this reality, this humanity, different realities that we don't really want to look at or think about. And I think this is really a gift that he's giving us. Yeah. The whole, uh, I think, no, you know, the, this is water sentiment, right? The, 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 uh, the fact that the, the, the ability to look at another person, even if, you know, maybe it's annoying or it's hindering you, it's the guy that cuts you off in traffic or the, the lady at the counter that doesn't work as fast as you would like, or maybe even, even we were talking before about the, um, the girl's father that, that who wears his daughter's daughter's clothes since he's not actually hurting anyone maybe he's been he's been fighting this you know with this sexuality for a long time for all his adult life so maybe this was the only one he cannot go out and buy uh, women's clothes because he, he cannot accept maybe himself or he doesn't want to be seen buying women's clothes of a certain size, maybe. So it's all this, it's kind of be, this kind of be for your daughter or your wife, what, what are you doing, you know? So maybe this, you know, always the other perspective that can be, can be had on something. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they, uh, so they beat the snot out of some dude and steal his money, right? And so now they have four hundred dollars, and they want to get drugs. 
Okay, so they go to the Brighton Projects, but it's too late. Roy Tony, we know him. Uh, he hasn't got his piss boys out. He's not open for commerce. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot. Poor Tony wants to just go over the line to the Enfield Square and try and just cop some dope from Delfina. Um, and, but what, uh, no, nobody else really likes that idea, right? So, uh, and I wonder if this is like a joke, um, cause like, or I can't even say it's a stereotype, but, but what is the joke about like Christmas day? You eat Chinese food, right? Cause everything else is closed. That that's I'm not making that up, right? It's in a, a Christmas story. Um Um so yeah, I, I wonder if that's part of it. Hey, it's Christmas. We gotta get we gotta get some drugs. You know, the Jews and Gentiles aren't open, so we better go to Chinatown. Uh so to Chinatown they go. Um and Mr. Woe inquires about poor Tony, right? Says, yeah, you guys hang out with poor Tony, right? You seen that? Seen that motherfucker? No, we haven't. We, we don't hang out with that fag, blah, 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 blah. Oh, good. Well, if you see him, tell him I said hi. Um, and so then he they bring out the drugs, right? And poor Tony very unaccustomedly kind of sits back and and watches his friends shoot up before he's going to try it himself and <clears throat> and one of them dies a, a pretty horrible and uh, descriptive death um because it was drano in there right So top of his head is that can that really happen? I mean, I God, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that seems to be a little extra, uh, but but yeah, I'm guessing that mainlining Drano isn't real, isn't a real good career move. Um, so. Uh, it took so yours truly here is Emil Minty, right? Or Emil Minty. Um, and it took him two days of kicking the bird in the hall outside my mumster's apartment. That for payback, she locked the door before I can get in a detox to at least cop some methadone and get three squares to stay down. Uh, in yours truly to start to theorize on what to try and do after I could stand up straight and walk upright again once more. So here they, here they are, this uh, group of uh, misfit drug addicts. They beat the snot out of a guy, take his money. I mean, $400 is like the fucking lottery for a drug addict. Um so instead of doing what they always do, 
you know, so it's like if I'm a if I'm a drug addict, and I, hey, I, I go get my weed from this guy. It's 20 bucks. And but I just put on I, I just put on these pants I haven't worn in a year and I've got 100 bucks in the pocket. I'm going to go buy weed from this different guy. I'm going to, you know, let, let's live it up a little. It's the same amount, but it's more expensive. And I and because I have money, I want the more expensive weed today. Um, so that that's kind of the way it goes down. And then because of that, they lost all their money. These drugs are virtually worthless. Um, you know, the irony of ironies is those, the untouched packages may be heroin. They might be pure fucking you know, Afghanistan opium. We don't know. And they're not going to, they're not going to find out. So here they are on Christmas, no drugs, no money. Um, and all just kind of living through it. And I know we get pretty up close and personal with poor Tony living in the library, but remember, all of his buddies are going through the same thing more than likely. Um, you know, and maybe to Muhammad's point about, you know, seeing people as people, um, you know, that one person on the corner that's asking for money, there's a lot of corners. So, so while we may just be seeing one person's struggle, there are a lot of people going through the same thing to say nothing about the dead guy. Uh, Cause yeah, he's got no money, no drugs and no pulse, which is considerably worse um, by one reading of it, at least. Anything else about that scene there? You know, I just thought about what you were saying before about you know, empathizing and realizing that they're all people. I feel like I may be wrong, you know, maybe I have to reread more closely, but there's never, I think, one character in this book that is only a comic relief, only something to be laughed at or, you know, some goofy character there that is just meant to... to to lighten up the mood is they are on the surface because even poor Tony is described as quite a, you know, an eyeful, right. <laughs> to, to behold, but, but he has a profundity as some tragedy about him. Right. So, and, and, and they yeah. give it to you. It's not, it's not hidden. It's not, uh, you know, you, you, and as we, as we say, we will come up on it, but, you really empathize with him sometimes. You know, there are scenes that are, you know, just that, that hurt where you hurt alongside him. So I just think, you know, it's, uh, I, I always feel like, I think this is one of the only, of the rare books where there is empathy towards all characters, as minor as they can be, you know. Yeah, yeah, they, right. There, there are no figurants, even if they are figurants they have feelings, right? And we hear about them. 
Um, Wallace said the purpose of fiction is to make you know what it means to be a fucking human, I believe. Um, and he certainly does endeavor there. All right, Hal and Oren. Oren calls Hal. Um, so here, this is where we find this statistic that um, I, I've heard often quoted. I don't know how much of it is true, though. Hal estimated over 60% of what he told Oren on the phone since Oren had abruptly started calling again this spring was a lie. Um, but Hal is high. He had no idea why he liked lying to Oren on the phone so much. Um, so I, I think we have to figure out, one, is this even true? Hal's estimate. Um, and if it is, what does it mean? And is it just the culpable deniability to say, well, I told you that more than half of what I say to him is a lie. Now it's up to you to figure out what's a lie. And if you catch me on something a little too close to home, I'm just going to say it's a lie because I already told you I lie all the time. I wonder if Hal is changing as he's having these phone calls and what was once the truth is now a lie. Can we identify any of these instances of half-truths, former truths, or outright lies? No. Like nothing jumps out at me. Um, So let's see what we got. So on the way in from the lot off the street here, I saw a pedestrian in a pith helmet stagger and like claw at the air and pitch forward onto his face. Another Phoenician felled by the heat, I think to myself. It occurred to Hal that although he lied about meaningless details to Oren on the phone, it had never occurred to him to consider whether Oren was ever doing the same thing. Okay, so that's kind of like the video phone, right? Like, yeah, I'm sitting here doing the New York Times crossword, but he or she must be paying rapt attention to whatever I'm saying. Um, this or, included us. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Like, like you were saying before, and you know, if one wanted to put on the tinfoil hat, right? Uh, this sounds like your description of the uh, Marat and Steeply conversations. You know, where someone, mm -hmm. you know, they're lying at to some degree, at least, you know, maybe you want to figure out to what degree they are lying, but there are, they are people who are trying to get info off of each other and not give as much. So maybe this is what is going on here. Uh, someone who is trying to prod the other to, to speak, but doesn't want to open up himself. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I have so a question. Where's Orin again? When he's having or these calls? Phoenix. He's in Phoenix. Okay. Yep. Because he, he plays. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yep. Um, so the man's face made a sizzling noise when it hit the pavement. 
like baking caliber sizzling. Um, like that, but that's not hell. That's Orin. And um, so, so what is going on here? Like the, Orin's busting his balls about masturbating. Um, he misses the quarter. You sound somehow a little off to me. Oh, I'm heat crazed. I might be dehydrated. What's that word? Everything looked all beige and powdery all day. Trash bags have been swelling up and spontaneously combusting. Also, I met somebody. Hallie, a possibly very special somebody. Uh-oh, dinner time. Um, and then separatists. Kidding aside for a second, what all do you know about separatism? Hal, stop for a moment. You mean in Canada? Is there any other kind? And that's it. So, so Oren calls Hal, says, basically, did I interrupt you masturbating? And Hal says, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? And then... Oren tells him about the guy that collapses on the sidewalk of a heat stroke and then asks Hal about Canadian separatism and cut. Cut to Ennett House, drug and alcohol recovery house was founded in the year of the Whopper by a guy who respected an anonymity so much that he didn't even use his first name. Um, so, uh, any thoughts on the legendary anonymous founder? I don't. Really, I just I think it's a funny thing to just throw in there. Um, I know that there are some theories that it, were, uh, it, it is uh, James and Condensa. Yeah, I've heard that too, yeah. but I don't know. That, uh, at, at least that he was a you know donor or something you know, or some. Yeah, I think that. I, I think that he certainly has a connection to the Ennett House. I mean, it's mentioned, um, obviously, like uh, when Joel gets into the Ennett House, it's very clear that some strings have been pulled. Yeah. Um, so I, I would certainly say there is some connection between himself and the Ennett House, but the um, the founder. It had said he had spent quite a bit of time in the Department of Corrections, which we know that, well, we haven't heard about himself doing the same. Um, and the nameless founder's death of a cerebral hemorrhage at age 68 went unremarked outside the Boston AA community. All right, so just a very brief introduction there of that Ennett House with the uh, the founder and then cut to the claims adjustment headquarters State Farm Insurance Companies. Um, 
so yeah this is uh an email thread basically saying get a load of this shit um and it's hysterical right Dear sir, I'm writing in response to your request for additional info. In block number three of the reporting form, I put trying to do the job alone as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter that I should explain more fully. And I trust that the following details will be sufficient. Um, so again, this is a, a very addict type thing, right? You get in a an accident, no matter how small or horrible. And someone says, what was the cause of the accident? Me trying to do the work of 10 people by myself was the cause of the accident. Thank you very much. God. Uh, yeah, we're going to need more details than that. Fucko. Oh, okay. Here we go. You know, um, and it's just, it's fucking hilarious, right? Like, the whole the whole thing is both horrifying and hilarious um you know i don't think we need to read the whole letter because we remember um but due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly i lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope Needless to say, I proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. Um, I mean, this just sounds scary to me. Like, if nothing else, holding on to something and being raised up however many floors. Um, in the note at the beginning where the guy's writing the message as he's sending it to his friend, like forwarding it, it says yes. that the guy's blood alcohol was 0.3 plus. And it says, so be pleased to know we're clear on the liability. And so like the guy's drunk anyway, it's like, a, which I didn't notice until just now. Yeah. Early, this If he wasn't drunk, it was, he had enough in the system. Yeah. This is, who is this? Oh, this is Dooney Glenn. It is? Yes. Oh, Dwayne R. Glenn. Indeed. Hmm. Yep. Um, so, yeah, we're going to meet him in the halfway house. Uh, still moving pretty slowly, which not a huge surprise, right? Did he have an impediment? I can't remember. Um, Did we meet him later? What was it? I I don't know offhand either. I imagine he's walking pretty slowly. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I don't remember. All right. So next up, uh, Hal's uh, papers about um, Hawaii Five O and Hill Street Blues. So in all caps intro here, Hale and Condenza's first extant written comment on anything even remotely filmic submitted in Mr. Ogilvie's seventh grade introduction to entertainment studies. Um, four years after the demise of broadcast television, one year after Dr. James O. in Condenza passed from this life, 
a submission receiving just a B, B plus, despite overall positive feedback, mostly because it's concluding was neither set up by the essay's body nor supported, Ogilvy pointed out, by anything more than intuition and rhetorical flourish. All right. Um, yeah. Any thoughts here about his essay? Do we think he wrote this essay? Yes, no. I never thought that he did it. Yes, okay. right. Yeah. Right, me neither. Are you skeptical? Yeah. I don't know. I know that in the first scene, um, it's mentioned abnormalities in his papers. And I think judging by the titles of some of the submitted work, I think it at least um, is possible that that Avril or himself had written some of them. No, I think that this is probably Hal. Um, he does talk about the postmodern hero. Um, and at the end, he talks, you know, kind of uh, back to Hamlet talking, because Hamlet is the hero of non-action. Um, and he says, but what comes next? What North American hero can hope to succeed the placid Frank? We await, I predict, the hero of non-action, the catatonic hero, the one beyond calm, divorced from all stimulus, carried here and there across sets by burly extras whose blood sings with retrograde amines. Um, Am, am I reaching here, or does Dave Foster Wallace's like essay writing tend to seep through Hal quite a bit in this book? I, like, I is he kind of like putting himself in in, in his shoes? Does I feel like that's anything else? I don't know. I think I think there's a lot of that, certainly. Um, yeah, because when he starts talking about postmodernism or tennis, it's like it, it always seems to relate back to his writing, his essay writing. Um, yeah. But then, yeah, just an observation. But this last paragraph sounds a lot like Hal at the beginning of the book, doesn't it? The hero of non-action, the catatonic hero. Divorced from all stimulus, carried here and there by burly extras. Um, it also reminds me of himself's father getting carried in the house. Um, you know, there are certainly instances of that. Um, but so you know how he was able to predict, Wallace was able, able to predict so many things that would end up happening in American mm -hmm. culture in this book. Do you feel like this has happened in American entertainment styles in any literal or figurative way in our yeah. sense of humor or comedy or I mean, 
YouTube and TikTok would certainly say that it had like, I don't even know if I know what's funny anymore. Um, like, I think I've got a really, really good sense of humor, but I say hilarious things all day that nobody understands are funny. Um, and also, I, I don't know what passes as humor these days, but it, it's certainly like, I think under, I think ideas are seen as a lot more funny these days um, because nobody wants to flesh out the whole concept. You know, it's like, no, picture this. So, so I go rent a car and I pay the extra five bucks for the insurance. So when I bring it back, it's like smoking and the fucking antenna is bent and the windshield is cracked. And I just throw them the keys and be like, here you go, guys. I filled it up for you. Um, you know, jackass one, I think that's, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. A, jackass yeah. might be a perfect example of this, but, but I think so, what, 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 to, you know, uh, to comment on what Liz was saying, I think there has been some sort of, uh, you know, um, decline of the all perfect hero and uh, i think as a society in an, in entertainment we don't we are bored of that i think we, we don't want it anymore we, we we would much like you know um what's the oh I, it was in italy it was called supercar you know the what the fuck is the the guy with the mustache what's his name tom Selleck. you know the, the tom Selleck. oh okay i was gonna guy. say barnett but no, no. it was, a it was tom Selleck. tom Selleck, yeah uh it maybe that kind of hero that they always or oh even more ridiculous what was it macgyver you know the one that, that they would would with the with the with the pin and some some lemon juice would, would create a bomb or something we would yes we have a kind of grown out of it, I think, of some kind of entertainment. Yeah, we like. I feel like we like make fun of that type of, like the movie Anchorman. You know, sort of yeah, makes was, that slick. I think it was. Uh, it was actually it was Nietzsche who vilified like he called the the Ubermensch, like the perfect man would actually be a villain, not a, not aspirational, like. They have no moral compass. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's definitely turned into a trope. Point. Yeah, that's a great point, Liz, and definitely something we can keep an eye uh, going forward. Um, but while we have Liz with us, we will let's do this last scene and then we'll wrap up for the day because I know this is one of Liz's favorite scenes, right? Is that you stole my heart? <laughs> Is it? All right, let's do it. So, um, so again, in all caps intro, enormous electrolyte, and, and spoiler alert, I'm sure this is not the byline on the article. Um, enormous electrolysis rash journalist, Helen Steepley's only putative published article before beginning her soft profile. So, this is just in what we've covered today, three sections that were firsts, right? 
Um, this is her first article. We talked about Mario's first romantic encounter and Hal's first written words about anything filmic. And her only putative published article to have anything overtly to do with good old Metro Boston. Um, four years after optical theor theorist, entrepreneur, tennis academician, and avant-garde filmmaker, James O. Incandenza took his own life by putting his head in a microwave oven. So, um, yeah, so Helen writes an article in Moment about this lady who had an artificial heart in her purse and the purse got stolen <gasps> um, by, well, let's see if anybody knows. Uh, in Massachusetts fashionable Harvard Square, when a transvestite purse snatcher, a drug addict with a criminal record all too well known to public officials, bizarrely outfitted in a strapless cocktail dress, spiked heels, tattered feather boa, and auburn wig, brutally tore the life-sustaining purse from the woman's unwitting grasp. So that's obviously poor Tony, right? Um. The active, alert woman gave chase to the purse-snatching woman for as long as she could, plaintively shouting to passers-by the words, Stop her! She stole my heart! Uh, she stole my heart! Stop her! And of course, the people kind of looked at each other like, Oh, isn't that cute? Like, um, and then the lady dies, right? Uh that the prosthetic crime victim gave spirited chase for over four blocks before collapsing onto her empty chest is testimony to the impressive capacity of the Jarvik 9 replacement procedure was the anonymous comment of a public medical official reached for comment by moment. Um, so this seems to me to be a, a, like a native advertisement. Um, like when you watch a movie and like someone very clearly drinks the Coca-Cola so that you can see, mmm, Coke. Um, so, and this happens a lot. Um, I'm in marketing and this happens a lot where you'll be reading a news article that is legit news. And then, you know, there's a link to something. And you're like, what the fuck? Dog biscuits? Like, um, so, so yeah, there's some native advertising in there, uh, the drug craze purse snatch. Oh, and also the, the obviously advertising is such a huge part of this book, right? Um, do you remember one of the best lines from the book about advertising? The purpose of advertising is to, Relievable only by purchase to create an anxiety. anxiety. Yeah. yeah. To, to create an anxiety that is only relievable mm -hmm. by purchase, which is fucking incredible and so spot on. Um, but it's mentioned Lyle's smile could sell things. 
Um, here we have, you know, a bit of advertising. Um, and is medical sciences awe-inspiring march forward, however, always doomed to include such tragic incidents of ignorance and callous loss, one might ask? Such seems to be the stance of North American officials. If indeed so, the victim's fate is frequently kept from the light of public knowledge. It's so um, like awkward writing. Like the, it's so clunky and yeah, like amateur. It's like Steeply is like really not a good journalist and not like a good writer, but maybe if he, she just you know, plugs moment enough. It's like a little cover preserving ass kissing. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and right. Cause I can't remember if it was before or after moment that Helen had the fling with an administrator or something. So, um, so yeah, maybe her talent did not exactly raise her to the top. Um, but the 46 year old deceased woman's formerly active alert brain was removed and dissected six weeks later by a Brigham and woman's city of Boston hospital medical student reportedly so moved by her terse toe tags account of the victim's heartless fate that he confessed to moment a temporary inability to physically wield the power saw of his assigned task. What the fuck is that? That that's is that like a huge WTF there. Like what? Yeah. That's the, that's the person doing the autopsy. And he has this power <laughs> saw. Yeah, because they they make a Y cut in your torso to open up your rib cage. So he's sitting there really ready to fucking get down. And he was so moved by by this poor woman that just for an instant, he couldn't cut her apart, um, which is absurd. I mean, that's all it is. Um, What's even more absurd is that we are supposed to think that he, he read all the, the stuff on the toe tag. On the toe tag. Yes. Yeah. The moment article was miniaturized like microfiche yeah. and put on the toe tag. Um, yeah, in similar, but not at all related note, ancient Egyptians, when they did autopsies, the person that made the incision, that was their only job. They would make the incision and then run because the other people would throw rocks at him, like, because it was desecrating a body, but they knew it had to be done. So they they would symbolically or whatever, throw rocks at the person chasing them out of there and be like, oh, well, you know, since he's wide open, let's see what's inside. Um, but. So, yeah, so there goes the Jarvik heart. Um, so it, it it's funny to me where we started today talking about how it's like a new book every time we read it. It's and and I had said that it really could be read in any order. Um, it's funny to me that it does seem to be put together in a particular order. Um, 
you know, in, in these sections, you have those intros with the, you know, the firsts and, and they line up. Um, the themes, the not lifting anything heavier than yourself, that keeps coming up as long as the world is very, very old. Um, so all of these things do kind of go together. Um, any thoughts, comments, questions? Um, one interesting thing that happened was that the moment that this Zoom call started, uh, The Atlantic put out an article of six classic books that still hold up and you should definitely read. And sure enough, uh, Infinite Jest made the list. So really interesting. Yeah. Check out their Instagram. That that is cool. I will. And Liz, before we wrap up, do you want to tell us about your BBC adventure? Um, The one about infinite jest. (laughs) That's the only adventure there is. Um, Yeah, that was cool. Um, There were about 16 people on a zoom call the BBC Radio 4 was doing a show about Infinite Jest and why. What is this book? Why is it so? Like the, it was um, the guy leading the show was a big fan of the book. So he wanted to invite some people on <clears throat> to talk about it. So basically the guy hosting it was leading a conversation, but the producer of the show, who was like through a media agency, was also on the call, sort of like guy, sort of like, texting the guy in the background, like guiding the discussion, like, okay, it's getting a little heavy. Can you make it a little lighter? Can you ask a question about this? And so anyway, it was sort of funny to be involved. Um, And like any radio show, you know, they cut lots of dialogue and they make a big cool thing out of it. And they barely used any, in the end, the show was great. You can look it up. It was very well made, totally makes like a great case for people reading this book puts a ton of intrigue out there, explains things about the book or like, it's really high. It's like a 10,000 foot view. Like I came prepared with like detailed, like, you know, they were not interested in that. It was like, so 10,000 foot, but um, in the end, hardly anything from our zoom call made the cut on the thing because he had also interviewed some scholars about it. And mostly like it was them speaking. And then him, like he's a comedian, this guy who's a host. So he's like very entertaining um but yeah i think it was about 30 minutes long you should go check it out it was on bbc radio 4 look it up i don't know it's cool it's a cool i love hearing other people talk about the book so it's nice if you're into that i i agree and i will look for it liz but if i don't find it will you send me the link yeah i can send it all right cool um yeah so i just took a look so as of what we have just finished we are on page 144 so um you know maybe what 20 percent a little less a little less than 20 percent of the way through the book um and at least in my opinion it really starts to pick up um moving on um with some of these sections that we have coming up. Um, I would like to, well, 
we can get a schedule and we'll get it out. But I, I would say maybe for the next time we get together, we'd go up to like page 181. Um, because this scene starting on page 181, late October, 60 minutes more or less with Madam is about to go on. Uh, Mario is with Hal at the headmaster's house. I think that scene is really, really, really important, or at least um, I, I think it's a... All right. So my uneducated, because I already told you, I don't know what a Sarpinski gasket is. I suck at math, but I kind of think that the key to opening it or understanding it is found in some of the sections. There are at least clues to crack the code and more or less if they're going to come from anybody in this book, it's going to come from Mario because he is the only one that is incapable of telling a lie. And not only is he incapable of it, he wouldn't even understand why anybody would lie. Like, why? What's the point? Oh, did I tell you Millicent Kent tried to grab my dick? Oh, cool. You know, like he doesn't really, he doesn't understand why wouldn't you just say what just happened? It happened. Um, so yeah, I think that scene is really, really cool. I think it's very important. I think that it raises probably 10 times as many questions as it answers. Um, so we will probably not get to that next time, but maybe we will. Well, guys, thank you very much again for joining for all the contributions. Um, yeah, what's up, Jojo? Are you saying goodbye? Okay. Um, all right. Well, guys, if I don't see you or talk to you, and I probably won't before Christmas, right? Um, read the uh, Junkies Christmas. It's great. Um, I forget how brilliant William Burroughs was. I saw a meme the other day that was a quote from Burroughs. Is that the only time Richard Nixon wasn't lying was when he called J. Edgar Hoover a cocksucker. <laughs> it is yeah. like, it's fucking hysterical. And also, hold on, dude, you're an 80 year old man. That's what you thought to write down today. Like, but, um, Cool. So that's all I got, guys. Thank you so much. Liz, thank you again for your time. Get to bed. I know it's the middle you. of the night for you. You. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. We'll see you thank soon. You. Thank Merry you. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Merry all that. Christmas. Take Bye, care, everybody. Guys.